Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today. And we've got a couple folks out, but I've got a couple good experts here to talk to you today. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. Morning, Philip. Good morning, Brad. So we're happy to have you with us. And we're going to talk about several things today as we talk through a listener question related to product disposal. So what do I do with vaccines, syringes, needles when they're expired? We'll also talk about what do you do when you have a deceased animal in your operation? What are some of the options to think about there? And Philip's going to tell us a little bit about a new intensive grazing management strategy that has come out and, and been pretty popular. We've certainly heard a lot about it recently. Before we get into those topics, if you haven't had a chance to listen yet, our Bovine Science with BCI has new episodes that come out weekly, and those are a little bit different format, a little bit more in-depth. I know you guys have talked, Brian, you've talked about different research projects, and Philip, you've got into diving into diets with some of the nutrition aspects. So if you get a chance, you may want to give one of those a listen. And before we get into, we were talking about diving into diets, Philip, which leads into my question. So I'm watching a movie the other day, and it's a submarine movie, which is kind of its own genre. I want to know what's your favorite submarine movie doesn't have to have just a submarine but it has to have a submarine in it i got two okay hunt for red october yeah Prob- probably probably my favorite yeah but u571 yes. is actually a really good i like both of those movies that's u571 so. is my favorite I don't know i've seen that one. Oh, oh. who's in that one uh, is that people Matthew, there's is that Matthew McConaughey yeah, in that one I I, it's a it's, a it's good really good uh, yeah I don't know that one I, I don't I'm trying to remember Hunt for Red October is the one that immediately comes to mind can't think about there's one and I can't remember the name of the movie but there's one eh, I'm just gonna let it go because I can't think of the name and I can't think of the actor right now either yeah. but there's there's a, a recent one Hunter Killer was one that I had yeah. just watched which is pretty good too but U571 is is my favorite but it's an old movie probably from the 90s classic if that's old you guys are old i know so we had a, a great question and, and i think this applies to everybody and, and brian i'm going to direct it to you first and then we'll jump in and and essentially the question was i have products either, either medications or vaccines that become expired or are partially used what's the best way for me to dispose of those additionally second part to the question is what about needles and syringes yeah and those are two there are two very different answers for those questions, I guess. So we'll kind of take them one at a time. So as far as product goes, so vaccine, antibiotics, drug products, the first thing I would try to do is get in touch with the manufacturer and see if you can return that to them, right? So, and I guess the reason I say that is what we don't want to do is just dump them we don't dump them out on the ground. Don't dump them in the regular trash. Like, and particularly when we talk about antibiotics, we don't want to just kind of release those into the environment. So, well, antibiotics and I would throw in a lot of our insecticides, dewormers, yeah. oh, yeah. pour yeah. on some of those types, anything that we've got, and and even our vaccines have sometimes can have things in them that we don't necessarily want in the environment. Yeah. So the first and probably best option would be try to return it to the manufacturer and see if they're able to dispose of it for you. In some cases, you might actually be able to get some product credit for that too. And not guaranteed if it's recently out of date versus long out of date, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But the, the first and best option is to return those back to the manufacturer. And I don't know that there really is an option to, um, now if you, what what probably large 
medical facilities and other places would do would be to incinerate those products. But I, I don't know that for most producers, there's a viable option for that. So I would talk to whoever you purchased it from. If you have, if you have a relationship with a representative from the company that manufactured it, that's probably my, that would be my first step in recommendation for products. And empty, empty bottles, empty containers, we're going to handle as refuse or trash. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's a, it's an empty clean bottle, yeah, that can go into the regular waste. Now, as far as the syringes and needles go, we would treat those as medical waste. And so we need to decontaminate those in some way. And there are some products out there and it, depends a little bit on local regulations, how you would go about handling handling this. So again, your veterinarian would be a good starting point. They might know what the local regulations are for medical waste. If they're really small volumes, they might charge you a small fee and just take it from you. You know, if it's needles and syringes, things like that, they might charge you a disposal fee or something like that, but they might be able to take it. But yeah, we need to make sure those get decontaminated. So as far as Maybe we should talk about, before we talk about disposal, we should talk about on-farm storage because usually those things, we accumulate a small volume before we're to the disposal point, right? We're not going to take in individual needles and syringes. And so really what we recommend for kind of storage of those products are hard-sided puncture-proof containers. And a, and a lot of people will use the thicker plastic gallon jugs are a good, kind of a good storage container what a lot of places would recommend you do is add a small amount of bleach into the jug. And then as you fill the jug, once the jug gets about three quarters full, then you find whatever your outlet is going to be. Like I said, it might be your local veterinarian. You might have access through a local hospital to a medical waste disposal facility. And like I said, there are some products out there that people may have access to depending on regulations where you would add that into that storage container Essentially, it decontaminates, it hardens, so we don't have the puncture risk. And at that point, then it can be disposed as regular waste. So there's a couple options for those products. So when I'll make a distinction there, you're, you're talking about a lot of times we manage what we'd call sharps. Sharps. So, so needles, blades, if you use a scalpel blade, anything like that that's used to broken, puncture. Broken glass tubes. Broken glass tubes, anything like that that could puncture, puncture or cause a problem. You handle those completely separate from everything else, and they need to go into a, a specific container. You can get a true sharps container, which has a, a little lid on the top, solid plastic container, and then there are companies that will come pick those up. You can talk to your veterinarian, your local hospital, find out a way to do that. But r regardless of how you manage that part, for sure, be careful with how you're both putting them in and how you're storing them. Because what you're trying to avoid is poking yourself with one of those or poking somebody else inadvertently. Yeah. And actually, the removal of the needle is the most common point for somebody to actually get a needle stick. And so what we, what we tell people to do, if they're small, disposable plastic syringes, don't take the needle off put it in the sharps container with the needle and dispose of it at once. If you're using a needle on a reusable syringe, like a pistol grip syringe or something like that, then use a, an instrument, a pair of pliers, um, needle holders, hemostats, whatever you have on your operation, but make sure that there's an instrument between you and the needle and certainly don't recap the needles because that's where the sticks happen that's where that's where it happens that's what, just what i was going to say is it's the recapping that get that gets you and, and all of us have done it and all of us have 
probably stuck ourselves at least once. So if you, if you can avoid that recapping, but the only way to avoid recapping and still be safe is if you've got someplace I can put that needle immediately. Yes. Right. I can't just leave a pile of needles sitting on the table as I'm working cattle. Nope. So a couple things there, Brian, you're, you're saying, so for expired products, I, I can call the company. I may not have enough of those expired products to do something with. So I may also contact veterinarian, may contact somebody and say, hey, what, what do I do with this? And a lot of times they'll have phone numbers on there. For your needles and syringes, we're going to manage those as, as medical waste. And anything that goes into the sharps container we want to make sure that we have an appropriate container for that and we have a plan for taking it out later. Did I miss anything? Just don't recap the needles. That, don't, that is don't a huge point. Yeah, don't recap the needles. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, that covers it all. Yeah, which all of us have done that. So it's not we're we're saying what we should do. So talked about disposing of products and, and other things, but let's talk about deceased animals. We never want to have an animal die on the operation, but sometimes they do. And I'm going to give a, a little background setup for you guys. One of the things, let's talk about cow-calf operations. So it could be a cow or it could be a calf. And let's say they died of unknown causes. I didn't know that they were previously sick. What are some of the first things you start thinking about, Brian, that I should do for my operation if I end up with a dead calf or cow? Yeah, so, and I know we say this a lot on this podcast, but I think even before that happens, the big thing is have the have a plan. Like, kind of know what you want to do. Because I think what happens in many cases is a cow or a calf dies of unknown causes. We get caught off guard and we kind of, I guess, I think the tendency as well, it's it's too late to really do anything with that. It was probably a one-off. And so, you know, I've, I've, I'm not going to worry about that one. And Or, I've or lost, I'm going to cut my losses and just move on. Just move on. But then we get to number two and now we're like, oh goodness, am I on the edge of an outbreak? And if I am and I get to number three, now it's an emergency, right? And and what happens is we're actually behind time-wise because we could have had information on the first animal that died. And we did. So if you have a plan and you know what you want to do, you're I think you're less likely to get caught off guard. So the first thing is, even before that happens, what am I going to do? And, and my recommendation is, I think it's really valuable to do a necropsy on every animal that dies. And it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily, I think a lot of people think, well, I got to call the veterinarian out and, you know, they may or may not be able to get there quick enough to take samples and things like that. I, we've actually, and we have a lot of experience for summer research projects here at K-State where, you know, we, it's pretty easy to train somebody to do a fairly basic necropsy. And the other nice thing that goes along with that is you don't have to be a pathologist, right? You don't have to be a medical expert. Everybody has a phone that can take pictures. And if in spending maybe 15 or 20 minutes with a veterinarian that can show you how to do the basic necropsy and what pictures to take will gain you a lot of valuable information. And I think a lot of that just all goes into what I said earlier is have a plan, right? Yeah. And your plan will be basic necropsy with some pictures. Yeah, have a have a plan. And it's just like any other skill, though. If you're doing if you do one and then don't do one for a long time, you, you, it's going to be hard to maintain those skills. However, I like the idea of you can learn a lot from doing the necropsy and it may lead you to not think about some things. It may not always give you the answer, but it may say, OK, well, it doesn't look like this was pneumonia or it doesn't look like this was scours or it doesn't look like this was an anaplasmosis. 
So it, any of those, I think, could be important learnings from doing a necropsy. So I'm, I'm 100% with you. I would do a necropsy on as many as you can. Call your vet, work out a plan, talk to them beforehand, see what they think. There are sometimes reasons if I think it might be lightning, depending on my insurance. I may have an insurance form that needs to be filled out in addition, which the vet will be able to help me with as well. So Philip, let's say we do this, I do a necropsy, but then I have to dispose of that animal. What are my options? Yeah, well, so the second part of your plan with a, a deceased animal needs to be how you're going to dispose of the carcass and, and how you're going to get rid of it. So there are some different options. Um, you can bury the carcass, you can compost it, or you can have a rendering service come pick it up. And those options depend on where you are, state regulations that take into account like proximity to water, soil types, other things like that that allow you to bury or compost. One of the things to think about with composting is you've got to have quite a bit of other material to continue to bury that animal in and work through, turn over and, and, and create a environment that will create the heat so that animal will compost correctly. So composting, and, and this is, it's kind of cool. I've learned a little bit about <laughs> composting in the last couple of years. And just watching people do it, there's more to composting than just taking a carcass and piling a bunch of material around it. How you pile it, when you pile it, how often you turn it, all of those things impact how successful that would be. Moisture. Moisture, how much moisture, how, much moisture, how I set up the air ventilation of that pile to maintain that I get the right flow as it goes through. I think are really important and what I put on the pile and the mix of stuff. And a lot of people use a, a mix. So I think we can't, I like the idea of composting. If it's legal in my area, I might think about trying that. But even with what I've seen, I would go, I'm not sure that I've got all the pieces and parts that I need to make that cost effective. So I might think about rendering or burying. And as you mentioned, check, check your county and state regulations on what's there and brian said this at the top i would check those things now before i have a dead animal so at least i know what are my options and is there a renderer that would come out and pick up because the rendering business has changed over the last 20 years and it used to be you could about always get somebody everywhere so now sometimes it's hard and back to that composting talk to somebody who's been doing it and learn the ins and outs and this and the things to do it well because the trick is or one of the key things is to maintain an aerobic bacterial breakdown not an anaerobic breakdown because that makes a very big difference in how well that composts yeah so unlike a silage pile yes, yes. <laughs> totally trying. opposite of a silage pile we yeah. want air instead of no air and then it's supposed to and then how you set up that base and how it's supposed to flow up through like a, a chimney through the animal to to help get that digestion process going mm -hmm. okay so if we have one we're talking about doing a doing a necropsy and then we've got ways to dispose anything else to think about yeah and another thing i would kind of put in there and we, i didn't specifically talk about it with the with the necropsy because those are animal samples but if you suspect a toxicity there are a whole other list of things that you you need to so probably you need to start collecting feed samples because, you know, we work closely with the toxicologists here at K-State, and a lot of those cases, by the time they've kind of decided it's a toxicity, maybe that feed's already been fed through or they're no longer in that pasture with that exposure or whatever. So we, we need to get 
samples that are contemporaneous with the the exposure and, and in this case the mortality so we want to make sure we collect and probably freeze so collect you know maybe a gallon bag of the feed samples freeze those you don't have to send them anywhere right away but if you get down the road and yes this is a case where we're suspecting a toxicity occurred we want to make sure we have those bank samples that we can go back to and check I think great, great point, Brian, of making sure that we've got samples. There may be other samples from the animal that we want to collect. I mean, this is where your veterinarian can be really helpful at knowing what to collect in what circumstances. And there's very little cost to collecting samples. A lot of our costs accumulate when we send them to the lab, but it may be worth it later if I'm thinking something else. Whereas right now, collecting, saving them, whether it's feed, water, or something from that individual animal, I can collect those and store them. I just need to be sure that I collect the right thing and store it the right way, of which both your veterinarian will be able to help you sort out. Yeah, but I, I do think, you know, what we've talked about, there there is a lot of valuable information that can be gleaned from doing that stuff. And then the last piece of it is just, just the records, right? So maintaining those records. So, you know, if we have something similar a year or two down the road, we can go back and we, now we can start to pick out patterns if they're occurring. Yeah, great point. Keep the records on what died, what it died from, and when did those things happen. So excellent. So I wanted to shift gears. Philip, you and I saw both saw an article here recently, and it talked about AMP grazing, AMP. So, and it talks about the relationship between that and sustainability. And I guess my question for you is, I'm going to start out with what does AMP stand for and and what does it mean? So AMP stands for Adaptive Multipaddock Grazing. And it's a grazing method that has gotten a lot of attention here in the last 10 years or so. It kind of came about in the region where we have a lot of native tall grass prairie because the research that had been done over the last 30 or 40 years on rotational grazing had shown good responses to forage productivity cattle weight gains per acre in introduced forages like fescue and brome and orchard grass and those types of forages but the same type of grazing management in native prairie didn't show those same responses and so trying to better understand why some range ecologists noticed and observed some different grazing management strategies that producers were using that allowed them to adapt to heterogeneity across the landscape better Um, they were varying stocking rate they were varying time of year that they grazed different parts of the ranch they're varying how intensely they graze or how frequently they graze different parts of the ranch So that changed then the grazing intensity, the grazing pressure, and allowed those forages to flourish. But we also need to remember that we do need to have grazing to help those forages flourish. Non-grazing or no grazing leads to uh, what they call a climax community, and then you end up with species that you don't want in there. And so we need some of that grazing, but it's managing the intensity and frequency that is a big key to that AMP grazing. Well, and it's responsive. So you're responsive to, cause there's a lot of things that impact both the quantity and quality of forage in the, during the grazing season and beyond, but rainfall, heat, type of grasses, the mix, whether they're responsive to cool or warm season, time of year, all of those things, which means 
it's, it's not really possible for me to sit and plot out today what my grazing plan will be, even for the rest of the grazing season. No, not very well, especially in those native prairie ecosystems because of the heterogeneity, even in forage species. We've got four or five dominant forage species in those pastures, plus several secondary type species compared to um, when we talk about fescue and orchard grass and, and brome, they, those are typically monocultures, or maybe they have a legume mixed in there as well, but we don't have the same number of species that, that, gr- that uh, respond differently to grazing and respond differently to climate and weather and things like that that we're trying to manage. So it sounds like it's kind of like rotational grazing on steroids, right? I mean, is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's, it's similar to management-intensive grazing, but I think the, the reason I use the term adaptive is that you're, it's, it's much more flexible. It's not nearly as prescriptive. How much more frequently would you be monitoring pastures in a kind of a, what you describe as an AMP system versus more of a traditional management intensive, like how, what's the... That's a good question, Brian. I don't know that I have a, a quantitative answer that I can give you, but probably much more frequently. And you're going to go back and be checking previously grazed pastures or paddocks a lot more frequently to see how they're responding and know which ones I can come back to and regraze and which ones I need to maybe even let go and only graze them once a year because they're not responding. Well, and part of it is you've got some divisions there, right? Because separate both these, whether it's AMP or the management intensive grazing, separate both those from a, what I would call a continuous grazing scenario where they're constantly hitting preferred forages, especially in those multi-species environments, you're hitting preferred forages harder across the entire area, which can lead to problems long-term. Yeah, because basically what you do, you start to graze out those preferred forages because they're constantly being grazed off. And so then that decreases the persistence of the forage stand. But it is a huge additional labor investment, right? Because with management intensive, people talk about, you know, you got to maintain the fences, you got to move the cattle, and that can be almost labor prohibitive. But now we're adding even more on top of that, correct? Yeah, it it takes an, an additional level of management from the producer to be able to get this to work. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think something, consider what makes sense for your area. And, and just like we talked about in, in, in the previous topic, have a plan, have a strategy. What does that look like as I'm going through? And then what this does is you adapt that plan. Mm-hmm. You move that plan, you monitor it, and it does take a little more managerial effort. But with the prices of hay this year in most parts of the country, any extra grazing days that I can eke out can be extremely valuable. So how do I, how do I keep more days grazing? So thanks for joining us today and good discussions, guys. If you have questions, topics, things you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.